This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and our guest this week is Brody Simpson. For almost a decade, Brody has been co-owner of Underground Recordings in Perth, Australia, where he wears a few hats as house drummer, engineer, producer, handyman, and whatever else he needs to take on to keep the business running. In his community and increasingly around the world through social media, Brody has carved out a niche for himself as a purveyor of some really unique sounds and playing inspired by boom bap, drum and bass 808s, and just some delightfully bizarre things he just comes up with on his own. This episode is sponsored by Sonatus USA. Get it right at the source is the most common advice we hear about recording drums. Tuning and mic placement are a great place to start, but what shouldn't be overlooked is the space you're playing in. The time and energy it takes to work up and record a great performance shouldn't be wasted in a sonically bad environment. Investing in a proper blend of absorption, diffusion, and bass traps will improve the quality of your recordings just as much as the investments you make in your playing instruments and recording equipment. Whether you're tracking, rehearsing, mixing, or just practicing, having a great sounding room is essential. Sonatus USA provides the products and consultation to get your drums sounding the best they can in whatever space you're working with. Check them out at sonatususa.com. That's S-O-N-I-T-U-S-U-S-A.com. And you can also hear acoustician Anthony Grimani of Sonatus talking with Matthew Krauss about all things sound treatment in episodes 306, 308, and 313. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. Talking to Brody, I became even more aware of what we as drummers, especially those of us who are trying to be our own recording engineers, should really be shooting for. He has a clear idea of the sounds he's after and a really deep and broad understanding of how physical technique, tuning, mic selection and placement, and mix all intersect to arrive at those sounds. It seems like he really sees the whole picture from the beginning of every session, and that allows him to pull the right levers in each area of his expertise and in each stage of the process. It's a really holistic approach to recording drums, and there's a lot to learn there. He's also just a really sharp, funny dude, so I think you'll dig this. Here's Brody Simpson. Hey, 
The first thing I want to ask you about is just these these sounds you're getting. I, I think it's kind of what you're becoming known for, uh, especially on social media. Um, and yeah. they're, like they're just they're just leaping out of the speakers, man. They're so <laughs> they're so cool and distinct. Um, so thank you. Uh, just talk uh, like I I, th- I have a you know more specific sort of question down the line, but just sort of talk about how you arrived at this uh, aesthetic and this set of sounds that you're working with. Yeah, cool. Um, I think it came from initially getting into the style of playing that I was getting into, the kind of boom bappy thing, the neo soul thing, you know, the kind of awkward gait of a groove. Mm -hmm. Um, And realizing that, I mean, I I think I've always been sound driven anyway, Um, but realizing that every time I set up a nice sounding kit, you know, like nice normal sounds, I didn't want to play that shit. (laughs) Um, It just didn't work, you know, like, um, so I basically experimented as much as I could to try and find ways to make those sounds. And I really had to, I really had to adapt my playing style for it as well, you know, especially the way I play a bass drum, especially, Um, you know, no more burying the beater if you want it to sound like an 808, you know, like (laughs) it just doesn't really work. I'm messing Um, with that. I'm messing with that myself uh, lately. uh, It's it's, it's partly sound driven, but it's also just like uh, physically driven and I'm trying to find more balance and strength and, you know, fluidity. Um, So yeah, not burying the beater is just a hard thing to get used to uh, feel wise and sound wise. Man, there's a level of um, groundedness or poise that it gives you playing mm-hmm. when you like when you can anchor your heels to the ground between strokes and actually just ground yourself, center yourself on the floor. Yeah, it just you know what I, what I found the biggest thing was it took all of the kind of anxiousness and um, nervousness out of my out of my downbeats, out of my ones especially. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it's rare now that I'm like rushing the front of a bar. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure it's not rare. I'm sure I do it all the time, but it's less likely to <laughs> well, happen. It's less common. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's less common. Um, yeah, it took, because you do kind of have to pick your leg up, um, you know, before you play the stroke, you have to complete a stroke each time. Right. And one of the things that I found also from a compositional standpoint was that if I played, if I had like a bigger, more relaxed kind of gushy one, I didn't cloud the front of the bar. I didn't cloud it with extra shit before the two. Yeah. And that is, uh, you know, like you land on a chorus and you get a big one yep. and the vocal, you know, the vocal either starts on the one or maybe it starts on the backbeat. Yep. And all of a sudden you've just made what seems like an infinite amount of space when in actuality, you know, it's sometimes milliseconds, right. you know, but like, it seems like, it seems like a massive chasm that can be filled with great songwriting shit, yeah. not drum shit. Yeah. 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 Um, and also actually on that note, also one of the biggest things I found I actually was doing, uh, I just finished a couple of shows a couple of weekends ago with a drum and bass, um, producer called shock one. And we've done a few kind of like live band shows, um, but the kick and snare are totally triggered. Well, the snare was actually a pad this time, which is a whole nother fucking mess of issues. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, because it was triggered and because I was playing really fast and playing really hard, it just 
it felt more consistent for the trigger for me to just bury the shit out of the beater. Like mm-hmm. I had the kick drum really muffled, so I was just really stomping on it. And also that kind of anxiousness and nervousness and kind of almost rushing that it added to my kicks actually made the samples more in time because there's like a little bit of latency in the SPD where I'm triggering from. So it's oh, actually going to help yeah. with that. Oh man! But playing around on that setup and bearing the beater when I wasn't listening to the samples, and I've noticed this quite a few times in the past as well, is like if you play like R1 on the kick mm-hmm. and you bury on the one, your R will have a lower note and more tone. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a super, like that's super backwards to what you want. <laughs> Right. Right? Like, it's, yeah. it's the opposite of what you're going for. Um, so, it's, it's little things like that that have opened up so much stuff in my playing and made those sounds more achievable. I mean, it's not like they don't involve, like, a hell of a mix. Right. They need a lot of mix, especially... Um, so, my approach to, to actually get back to the question, <laughs> good thing I don't have a hard out, Jesus. Um, <laughs> um, to get back to the question... Um, I treat the sounds as if I'm kind of creating a couple of different loops in the way that a producer would grab a top line of the loop from, you know, record A mm-hmm. and the kick pattern of the loop from record B and, you know, whatnot, like kind of chopping things together like that. So I treat, there's, it's, my focus is very much on separation between my limbs to, so that I can create the illusion of having layered up different drum loops on top of each other. Right, right. Or, or like a, a set of uh, one shots arranged in a such a way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's always like quite a disparity between my kick sound, my snare sound, and my cymbal sounds. Right, right. Um, so one of the things I've been um, sort of focused on recently in, in my studio is um, getting, uh, you know, like getting as close as possible to the sounds that you ultimately want before shit even hits the box, right? Just through, sure. through tuning and placement, um, so or mic placement that is. So I, I'm wondering like where that that line is for you because you you mentioned that a lot of this stuff takes like a lot of mixing. Um, but you know what's what's your approach as as far as just setting the sounds up in the room before any EQ or compression or plugins or, or any of that? Where's that line for you? Yeah, definitely. It's I mean, the, yeah, the sound at the source is very much key. I would, I would say that uh, the way you're actually playing those sound sources is really the biggest key. Mm. Um, you know, I'll do things like I will try and get the bass drum note to kind of the length that I want for the way I'm playing or an approximation of that length if it's something that I feel like is going to be really hard compressed in a mix and things like that. Um and in terms of, you know, toms and stuff like that, definitely getting them as close to what you need as possible. Um, I've got some preamps I use for toms and snare all the time, which um, there's Sebatron um, tube pre's, which have like a deep switch, which just adds, a you know, some bottom end and mm-hmm. a bright or an air switch up the top. Um, so that kind of scoops out close mics immediately. Hmm. I, I'm kind of of the train of thought that, um, close mics especially just don't sound like drums anyway, you know, like, so, <laughs> so trying too hard to, um, to get them, you know, to sound like finished drum tones is, 
maybe a bit of a fool's errand in, in, in some cases. Um, but just, I think it's like the overall aesthetic of the sort of whole sound of the kit that mm-hmm. 100% needs, needs to be in place from, you know, from word go. Right. Um, yeah. And, and then, like I say, how you're actually playing, you know, like I've spoken about this a few times in the past, like playing for bus compression. So like if you're playing something that's meant to be like a real straight ahead, boots and cats kind of thing. Yeah. Um, like by the time you smack a compressor on a drum bus or on a mix bus or whatever it might be, all the shit that's in between the downbeat and the backbeat is going to get pumped up. Mm-hmm. So you might actually, if, if, it, if it needs to stay dead straight and not have that pumpiness, you'll actually need to incorporate that into your playing mm-hmm. unless somebody wants to go through and do a shitload of volume automation. And I'm very often that somebody and I don't <laughs> want to go through and do a shitload of volume automation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, for the same matter, if you do want it to have that slightly pumpy thing with like a bit of breath on the upbeats playing kind of dead flat dynamically so that when it does pump, it doesn't accentuate those upbeats to like a degree that's sort of, you know, less musical for the tune. Right, right. I, I uh, Things like that. It's interesting what you said about like, you know, close mics often don't sound like drums. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of, I'm getting hip to that idea. Um, but it's, it's kind of counterintuitive because if I think of, um, you know, sort of these, these lo-fi, very discrete drum sounds, I like I think of the close mics, right? It's like those those are the mics that are gonna get the least room noise, uh, the most focused, uh, you know, sound of that drum. But uh, like you said, you know, those those mics don't often capture like the the sound that our ears are used to hearing from a drum set. Yeah, I think it's 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 kind of on a it, um, it's scenario dependent. So if it's something that meant is meant to sound more organic then the close mics are, you know, an, uh, an, an augmenting sound. Right. There's something that brings clarity and punch to the overall drum sound. Whereas if it's something that's meant to sound less organic or something that's meant to sound really claustrophobic or that real classic kind of dead 70s thing, then yes, the close mics are the drum sound. Mm-hmm. But if you were to listen to those drums in the room the close mics do not sound like drums in a room. I think maybe to clarify, close mics don't sound anything like drums in a room. Right. And they don't also sound like drums when you're sitting behind a drum set. Right. You know, like it's a very different thing, unless you can handle putting your ears, you know, three centimeters from a snare drum, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't normally recommend that. Yeah. I'm realizing like, an, as you're talking about this, I'm realizing another layer of the whole, um, you know, cause we were talking about uh, getting shit right through tuning and placement first. Um, but, but then in, in your mic placement, there's this other layer of like, you know, are the, um, are the, are the roomier mics going to be a supplement to the close mics or vice versa? Like, which one are we going to get right first? And then, you know, which one are we going to kind of fill in some gaps with? Um, so yeah, that's a cool, that's a cool approach that just sort of like, uh, dawned on me here. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's very much. I guess it's one of those experienced things that we can kind of think a few steps ahead as mm-hmm. to like, you know, whoever mixes this, which, which mics are they probably going to push? Um, and, and also what portion of the sound are they going to be looking for from those mics? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, you start sort of making decisions that maybe aren't or making uh, assumptions that maybe aren't going to 
uh, be the end result. But, you know, like there's certain things where I found when I've recorded kind of heavier stuff um, and even in mixing some kind of heavier, sort of more raucous stuff, I actually really like the sound of cymbals in the room mics more so than the overheads. Mm-hmm. Um, and which means that like you may need to run two sets of room mics, one that is going to be something that you can push kind of more tone of the drums into and try and get rid of some cymbals, trying to eliminate some cymbal sound out of, and then maybe some that are up, you know, in a different position, which are going to get a little more of the tail of the cymbal without the kind of harshness that comes from having an overhead, you know, a, fo- a foot or two away from it. Right. Um, so very much situation dependent with that. So and with with placement specifically, I would say for close mics, uh, my placement is like seventy five percent focused on getting as much isolation as possible, like mm-hmm. utilizing the polar patterns of the mics and you know wherever the sort of nulls are. Right. Right. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I've been using a lot of ribbon mics for um for sort of close micing hats and things like that, trying huh. to really utilize. Yeah. Oh man, they're fantastic for it. Like. I mean, you obviously get sound in the back of the mic, but if you put a, like I use Royo 121s quite often for hats and even rides sometimes under the ride, which is like an incredibly unnatural sound, but it's something that you get a lot of isolation from. Hmm. Um, and especially having like a, a left-hand crash near the hats, you can aim the null. You can kind of have the ribbon mic, the 121 on such an angle that it's kind of looking at the hats but the null on the side is looking at the left-hand crash and then the null off the front because there's that entire circular plane that's completely null. Right. Well, you know, null enough. Um, <laughs> looking, kind of down, looking kind of down at the snare. Um, yeah, that my placement is, yeah, so much, so much um, revolves around rejection and especially for the kind of boom-bappy sounds because everything is going to get gated and... And also, you know, not just gated with a gate, but you know, manually chopped out. Mm, um, yeah. So I'm just looking for as much as much um, separation as possible. Right. So when it when it comes to the mix, um, you know, obviously that's uh, sort of uh, situational as well. But what are some um, you know techniques or uh, plugins that you tend to rely on more often than not? Yeah. Um, Plugins wise, um, Shep's Omni Channel, I think, is fantastic. Um, I basically have, I use a lot of Waves plugins, and that's not because like I have any kind of loyalty to Waves or any kind of you know any kind of relationship with them, but more so that many years ago I spent a ton of money on Waves plugins, mm-hmm. so, yeah. <laughs> so you know I'm going to use them. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, the Shep's Omni Channel. Um, the J37, um, tape emulation, mm-hmm. um, not just for kind of tape saturation or anything like that, but really for like overall tonal control, like each different setting has a very distinct tone. Um, and obviously, you know, tape saturation is a beautiful thing for drums because you can, uh, kind of squeeze out a bit of transient without things sounding massively compressed or overly compressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Waves F6 dynamic EQ as well, that gets a uh, massive workout. <laughs> cool. Yeah, like that. It's, they, I mean, they pretty much go on each track and also the drum bus. Wow. Every yeah. single thing. Um, yeah, there's just, I, I like, I mean, obviously, you know, things get changed out, but that, that's like a nice starting point for me. 
um, as much as I'm trying for individuality and kind of like disparity between the different sound sources, I've just kind of come to know those plugins well enough that um, it makes sense that I'm not changing my technique on each different source, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like yeah. not having to sort of remember or or, or um, learn the intricacies of different plugins for every single time I'm doing something else. And, and like I say, I mean, I use a lot of other plugins also, but those three get used on pretty much everything I do now. A studio which I own with um, with my business partner. Uh, it's a you know commercial commercial studio. We do bands, singer songwriters, all sorts of stuff. We've recently been doing a bunch of um, like commercial ad work, which has been so wicked. It's <laughs> so good. Cool. It's so nice to just like put shit down and be like, no one cares about the art side of this. Like, it's, it's quite refreshing. Um, <laughs> you know, there's only so many times you can work on something and it just feels really precious. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, with the ad stuff, you can knock out a few tunes and like everyone's just like, all right, is it the right length and does it meet the brief? You know, yeah. not is it going to change someone's life? Um, is it going to make someone spend 20 bucks? Not is it going to change their life? Um, <laughs> right, so yeah, so right. that, that, that's been really fun because especially because I really, these days I really prefer, um, shorter kind of in and out jobs. Yeah. Um, where, especially when it comes to kind of engineering and producing stuff. Otherwise you just kind of get stuck in this world of like working on a record for like two, three months. And by the end of it, you're like, it's very hard to not so much maintain enthusiasm because I kind of always want to get it finished to a, you know, a cool standard, but, um, maintain some sort of like objectiveness over the, over what's actually happening at the end of the process. Um, so it's cool. It's cool like to divvy things up like that and actually have some sort of shorter jobs that, uh, sort of, I mean, also pay better, but, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah. But you know, like, kind of happen quicker and have less of a an onus on on the importance of the art. Right. It's it's. Uh, I, I would imagine that it's a more uh, cynical approach w- without uh, without putting too much negative energy on the word cynical. Right. They're like they're yeah. just they're, they have a clear it's, objective and it's not uh, precious. <laughs> it's not their baby. It's yeah. It's pragmatic. Right. It's, um, I mean, I've seen the way some people work on it, and it's, it's moderately sociopathic. Um, but, <laughs> um, I, it, yeah, like, if you go into the studio to work on a record with a band that is, like, they're obviously super close to it, and there's a grand vision, and there's, you know, there's, like, a depth to everything that means a lot to everyone involved, and, and including myself and my business partner when we're working on something. Um, it's just really draining, you know, yeah. like it's, it's just a lot, it's a lot to go through. And especially if you're doing it, you know, a handful of days a week, sometimes for like 
six months, you know, like, so it might go away for a few weeks and then come back and do more stuff. And it's like to maintain consistency and, and, um, yeah. And to be impartial enough to be able to work on it and make decisions that maybe the band can't make. Like, it's just, it's just a lot to deal with. So it's nice to have those small jobs where it's like, we just need to knock this stuff out. It's got to sound good. It's got to be competitive, but it's also not somebody's baby. Right. Right. How long have you been, uh, you know, the, the owner operator of this, what is the name of the studio? The underground recording studios. It's, it's called that because it's what it was called before we took it over. (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) um, I've, uh, we've been in here since around, uh, start of march 2012 so like nine years now wow okay and so it was a business that it was an existing business that you acquired it was we sort of i mean as much as you can acquire a studio business being that it's really more dependent on the people that are working there than the space itself Mm -hmm. um but we kind of acquired a bunch of the gear and the actual fit out in the in the industrial unit that we're in um and then we spent like a few months like renovating and treating they're doing a whole bunch of acoustic work and a little more soundproofing and things like that right and what were you doing before that did you have like your own little home rig uh no (laughs) 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 i came in i came in blind um my business partner luckily had a lot more experience than i did he used to actually lecture at an audio college um but, you know, like practical real world experience is a very, very different thing. Uh, I was interested and I'd done like a little bit of demo recording for bands that I've been in and things mm-hmm. like that. But mostly I did not want to continue to work in music retail, which is what I was doing beforehand. So Got it. I'd quit I'd quit that um, a few months prior to, to this opportunity coming up. And I just couldn't convince myself to find anything similar. And I'd been doing the music thing. But, you know, only doing the original band thing, not really making money from music, not really doing a ton of touring or doing cover work or weddings or any of that kind of stuff. Like I was doing original bands that, you know, we'd, if we went touring, we'd lose money kind of, kind right. of vibe. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I just needed to do something in music and I've always, every time I'd recorded before that, it was the process I enjoyed the most out of the entire sort of like music game that I'd been a part of to that point. So right. and so just kind of made your, sense. All of your expertise in the studio uh, w- was sort of acquired, like not just on the job, but on the job as an owner operator of, <laughs> of this studio. Yeah. On the job and the brink of potential bankruptcy <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you need a motivator, that that's a, that's a pretty sweet kick in the ass. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm very lucky that it never got that dire, mm-hmm. but um, I was never going to go and study it. I would not have learned it that way. If right. I'm ever going to learn anything, I've got to teach myself. Right. Um, and yeah, so, and then as, you know, as time progressed, it, there was always the idea that, you know, I would be the kind of resident session drummer at the studio as well. That was always kind of a big part of the plan. And that's mm-hmm. been a big part, big part of our work for the entire time we've been here. Um, and my business partner, Mark, plays um, guitar and uh, very competently keys pretty well, bass pretty well. So, you know, we could bring in singer-songwriters and workshop stuff and, you know, play everything for them and help them arrange everything and that sort of stuff. We had a lot of songwriting experience prior to that anyway. Um, 
but as time progressed, it, the sort of roles of me sort of really pursuing the drum thing more became became more evident. Right. So you know, everybody talks about uh, you know musicians be like we are we are all uh, our own little small business, right? Um, and that's that's true. Uh, but what what was your on the job training like as far as being like an actual business owner? Because you're not just you know your own little small business. You were the owner operator of a brick and mortar, uh, you know, <laughs> small yeah. business, which comes with a lot more. Um, you know, responsibilities and just like shit to worry about than if you're just a freelancer kind of out there operating your little uh, brand or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got rent to pay. You've got uh, heating and cooling and water and gas to worry about uh, in your business as well as your home. There's there's taxes. There's, you know, it's a small business. So, I mean, what what have been the lessons learned about that end of it? Man. I'm fucking terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so bad at it. I hate, I hate it so much. I'm Um, sure I would too. Yeah. Like I'm not good at business. Um, and also the way I've kind of gotten to the point that I've gotten to is by literally finding the thing that I wanted to do and sticking to it as opposed to, I like I've never gone looking for work. I've never I've never had like a big hustle. Hmm. Um you know that I would never hit somebody up, cold call somebody and try and try and get work out of them kind of vibe. It's just it's just not me. It's not in me. It's not something I've ever done or probably will ever do. Mm-hmm. Um it became evident that if I did the thing that I do and that I'd um gained enough competency in um, and just kept putting that out there that the work started coming to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the only way I've ever managed it. Um, and I'm, and I'm like, I'm really happy with that. It feels really organic. It doesn't feel forced. I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel like a salesman. Right. Um, and yeah, business hustle is not my thing. <laughs> not, <laughs> not even remotely. I mean, the, you know, the logistics of running a business and doing tax and all that sort of nonsense. Like I just, I do the bare minimum of what I have to do for it to not be a pain in the ass at all times, basically. Right. right. Um, and I need to be so much better at it, but I'm just, I, it's the sort of thing I struggle with really badly. I, I struggle to kind of organize my brain enough to be able to just switch off all of the other aspects of wanting to create things and wanting to make videos and wanting to do sessions and stuff to actually sit down and focus on that stuff for long enough to you know to get it done efficiently and on time (laughs) (laughs) you've just reminded me of so much shit i've got to do actually Uh, (laughs) god damn it well i'll let i'll let you go brody have fun with the (laughs) spreadsheets and the receipts gonna go and email my accountant (laughs) yeah oh man um well like you know my my wife and I uh bought this house in Atlanta uh about 3 years ago and and before becoming a homeowner I was under the impression that you know if if you're a homeowner you uh you spent money when you wanted to like upgrade when you wanted to you know redo your bathroom or you know whatever <laughs> and and I quickly found out that you know as a homeowner you're just constantly spending money so that it's not to upgrade it's just so that not everything is fucked at the same time um Exactly. <laughs> are you finding the same thing uh with with oh, your man, business like 
going to the store down the road to buy like three hundred dollars worth of cables. <laughs> you know, like shit. Like I walk back. I, I, I walk back into the studio. I'm just like, well, that was one of the worst things I've ever had to do. You know, like it's just. It, and there's yeah, there's so much more of that. When you start out, you're like, man, we'll just like we'll knock out these few jobs and get the invoices in, and then it's like we'll we'll get that you know those that new set of pre's or that new mic that we wanted that would really would actually be like a sound business investment but it turns out that you know the the aircon's shit itself or i need new cables or i'm on my 19th music stand because no one sells decent music stands in this fucking town you know like like that sort of stuff um yeah that that stuff becomes very evident very quickly and especially when we were renovating the place and putting in like we built the whole bunch we had a friend of ours help us design and build like a lot of acoustic treatment and and kind of um like wooden panel traps for sort of targeted sort of frequency ranges and things like that and just watching the money just like <laughs> just gurgle down the drain for like for like sheets of marine plywood that weren't even very good anyway you know like right. or like having to go to the local fabric store to try and buy fabric to cover some trap and it's like I did I did not envision spending so many days at a craft goods store, yeah, you know, to to try and to try and record music, yeah, yeah, that, that stuff, that stuff becomes very evident. Uh, my partner Matt uh, did a series of interviews recently with um, Anthony Gramani, who's from uh, Sonatus, which is like an acoustics uh, company, and it it just yeah. made me realize, like, you can, you know, you can you can buy you know products from companies like Sonatus, or you can do it yourself, but but whichever way you go. You know, for for like a functioning studio, um, the just the the floor is really high as far as just having everything oh, sort of workable. You know, like before you start worrying about like really fucking fancy mics or uh, pre's or or any of that. Like just getting the infrastructure of your room or your building, like it takes a long time and a lot of work yep. and and or a lot of money. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and one of the problems we had was that we were kind of backed into the corner of the layout that the studio already had before we took it over. Yeah, yeah. So everything we were doing was trying to operate within those bounds, which didn't necessarily lend themselves to the final result we were looking for. Not that it was, like, terrible or anything, and and the the previous owner was operating and, and, you know, doing cool mixes, recording cool shit out of here. But we kind of came in wanting to be like, all right, we really want to kind of refine some of these things. And when you're operating, when you're doing that within a space that wasn't designed to accommodate that, that was, man, I, I never want to renovate a studio ever again in my life. <laughs> I, would, I would so much rather build one from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, I was so done with that by the end of it. I'm like, can we please just get rid of these fucking circular saws out of the live room and put a drum kit up, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) That took some time. But it it panned out quite well. Like, I mean, the control room, it's way more comfortable for what we were looking for and it's, you know, it's reasonably flat. Um, Live room, you know, it's pretty well balanced. It's not a massive room. It's got nice high ceilings, but it's like well balanced. Nothing is super sort of resonant or boomy or... Nothing takes off too crazy, so it's it's worked out well.
speaking of your videos and you mentioned sort of like, you know, just putting yourself out there and not hustling super hard, just like doing what you do and putting it out there. Talk about your uh, social media approach. I wish it was more measured than it is, to be perfectly honest. Um, the entire uh, philosophy behind it is do a thing, not do something. Mm -hmm. So, like, if I'm going to make a video or I'm going to do something, it's going to be like I've actually workshopped it and I've come up with a part and I've developed a sound set for that. And, you know, it might only be a 20-second video, but then I've mixed it for two or three hours and, right. then you know, like my actual, the actual video side of things is, you know, nothing to sort of be looked up at, that's for sure. But <laughs> the Sonic side of thing is what matters to me. Um, yeah, like it's, it's always been like develop an idea and just put that idea down. Like it's been a very long time since I did anything remotely kind of like, uh, remotely to impress drummers. That's for right, sure. Right, right. Um, um, and that's actually a big thing that I've noticed, you know, like so much of the interactions I have with people on Instagram now and, you know, my, the, the followers and the sort of metrics there, it's, it's a lot of producers, a lot of mixers, a lot of studio owners, uh, singers, songwriters, guitarists, bass players, you know, obviously still probably drastically more drummers, right, but right. it's getting to, it's getting to the people because really the whole idea behind Instagram for me was that it was a way for me to put what I was working towards being able to do and then eventually could kind of competently do to put that out in front of the people that I wanted to see it that I would like to work with. Um, so that, you know, I like I say, I could never just like shoot somebody I don't know a DM and be like, hey man, I'd really like to work with you. That'd be really sweet, big fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> I yeah. can't do that shit. Yeah. Um, so I kind of just had to put my stuff out there and be like, this is what I do and I I hope you like it and if you want to work with me hit me up. Right. And you know you 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 said that um you're not really aiming to impress drummers and I know what you mean by that because uh, you know social media is is full, like we oh. all we all know that shit when we see it and it's just like ah notes okay great good for you. Um mm. but I I think you know you you talked about this sort of alchemy of um sounds in the room and technique and uh mix um and i think so many i think it's one of the reasons that your ig is has taken off with a lot of drummers is because uh i think now more than ever doing home recordings um like so many of us are drummers are are realizing like how how refined that alchemy uh, can be and and needs to be. So rather than uh, you know going to your social media for you know the fill of the day, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. they're they're, yeah. <laughs> they're starting to see like oh holy shit! Like if you if you get sort of all of these areas of expertise at a high level, like these are the sounds you can come up with. These are the grooves you can come up with. These are the aesthetics um, that you can uh, put out there. Um, it, it was that was that always sort of the goal like did you did you take the long view about that approach or or was it a lot of trial and error along the way sort of settling into that that's been a really nice positive accidental byproduct well semi accidental byproduct um i think i think i've got a community of people 
sort of that I interact with and that are kind of following my page and, you know, like there's a lot of, you know, sort of mutual interaction there that understand what I'm trying to do and mm-hmm. appreciate that sort of thing. If one of my videos gets shared on, you know, one of those horrible fucking spammy bot pages, they <laughs> cop heaps of hate. You know, it's like, man, this shit's not even in time. It's like, all right, cool. You oh, know? man. <laughs> we, we probably won't be friends, but that's all right. Right. Um, you know, so like it's there's kind of a community there and and in saying that I wasn't trying to impress drummers I wasn't but that doesn't I in no way is that me trying to de- devalue the like pretty amazing group of people and community that's actually out there especially on Instagram I've, it's it's weird Instagram when I first looked at it many years ago I just felt like it was this horrible vacuous vapid just like waste of time and then no that's facebook yeah, yeah oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's it man there's just so many immunologists on facebook these days um <laughs> yeah i just i looked at it and i'm just like this whole thing just seems like this weird plastic face value nonsense but you know i gave it a bit of time and and a community develops and and it was it's been a fantastic it's been one of the main driving forces behind the Career is the proper term that I'll use for it, but (laughs) whatever I do, it's been one of the main driving forces behind that. Um, So I definitely do keep that in mind, and I I try to reply to as many people as I can, and I try to answer as many questions as I can. And you know, like I do, I do pick up some students and stuff from there, and people will hit me up about you know how do you record this, how do you do that. I've got a shitty bedroom. What could I possibly do? And, you know, we I do lessons with people mm-hmm. on that kind of stuff yeah. um, occasionally whenever I actually have proper time to dedicate to it. So, yeah, it's been amazing from the, like, meeting and interacting with other drummers standpoint. Um, but it's it wasn't my goal yeah. with Instagram. My goal was to put myself, especially being that I'm in Western Australia where – none of those people are that I wanted to work with, you know? Like, right, right. <laughs> I recently did a live session um, for a Canadian artist, which was kind of all filmed on our end and then all filmed on their end. And they've released a bunch of them so far. Um, I don't, uh, I assume I can talk about it to some extent. Um, yeah. So they've, uh, they've released a bunch of them and like some, it's a guy called uh, Bahamas who's amazing. The tunes are so good. And you know, like they had. I've heard of this guy. Didn't didn't um didn't Gadson play on that guy's last record? Yeah. So most of the tunes I was doing with him <laughs> were Gadson tunes, <laughs> which was just about as intimidating intimidating as it can get for me. And also the bass player I had on boards playing, you know, Pino parts. Right. Um, <laughs> oh my god. So yeah, like most of the tunes we were doing were from that record, which was yeah, all pretty much all Gadson and Pino. Yeah. Um, I got to listen to that record. Yeah. What's the name of that record? Because he's got oh, a couple man. out, I think. Yeah, I should really. Hold on, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna Spotify it right now. Yeah, because I should know this. I should know this, and I'm terrible. Oh, that one's called Earth Tones, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah that one's called Earth Tones, and he released another one not so long ago. Uh, maybe called Sad Hunk. Or that might be one of the song titles. Or that might be just like something that he's pushing, which is, yeah, he's a really funny, super dry, super sarcastic guy. It was a dream to work with. It was amazing. Yeah. But yeah, when I, they kind of came across me through Instagram, um, both sort of the, both Afy the artist and also his, um, 
his producer slash manager, uh, Robbie, who's incredible, has done like so much amazing stuff, done heaps of work with Feist and some like just amazing acts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they came across me through Instagram and I spoke to Robbie on the phone and he's like, yeah, so we've got, you know, <laughs> we've got the crew in Nashville, we've got the crew in LA. Uh, I think we're going to do some in London, blah, 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 blah. The last one they released was like Joey Warrenker on drums and like, and he's like, and then Perth. <laughs> he's like, you know, P- Perth wasn't really at the top of our list. And I'm like, no, nor should it have been. Of course it wasn't at the top of your list. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, all that to say, being that I'm in Perth um, and I have no intentions of leaving here and I have no intentions of going to try and make it in LA or Nashville or anything like that. I needed to put myself out into the world as someone that can do this stuff remotely and work with people remotely and and try and find my own little niche mm-hmm. because there's a thousand remote session players out there. Right, um, right. And it seems there's yeah. there's this whole there's a whole other like social media hustle where you know I mean you've got um, I don't know close to fifty thousand followers or something on on Instagram and and people with that many followers like I think in in some cases. Um, there was a concerted effort on their part to like work the hashtags and work the algorithm. And, uh, uh, as Josh Harmon would say, like appease the social media gods. Um, (laughs) but in other cases it was, it was just, you know, truly viral and just gained popularity and momentum because of what it was because of, uh, it's, it's quality. So, uh, which, which was, uh, yours? (laughs) So my, there's definitely been a deliberate effort, but that has been to not make one of those efforts <laughs> that so many people make on social media. Yeah. Um, my page has grown very slowly and very organically. Mm. Um, if 10 people follow me in the space of 10 minutes and I have a look at a few of their accounts and they follow Supermodel A, Soccer Player B, Etc. Etc. And maybe some other random musician, they get blocked. I don't care about those people. They're, wow. they're, they're spam. They're spam followers. Like I have, fuck. It's got to be upwards of ten thousand accounts blocked. Wow. Um, because it's just not. It's not real. It's not mm-hmm. in any way organic. It's not. There's nothing to be gained from that whatsoever, apart from the face value. Someone looks at your page, and you have seven thousand million followers but each post gets four comments and two of them are you replying to a fire emoji saying, thanks, bro. Um, <laughs> fuck, I sound so old and cynical right now. <laughs> no, I've... You I, know why? Because I'm fucking old and cynical. Um, <laughs> I wish you weren't on the other side of the world because we would, we would have regular beers and just have like these old guy commiseration sessions. Uh, because I get I've, that feeling, man. I've, I've said... I've said you know, things, uh, frightfully similar to what you just said. Um, yeah, it's, well, like it's, I, I don't see the point in doing it for no result or for a facade that ultimately means nothing. Right. Um, I, I don't have the time for that and I don't care about it right. in that way. Like I'm in no way do I want to be any kind of famous or have any kind of notoriety for having like a massive social media, like what does that gain me? Mm -hmm. Like maybe one day I'll sell teas that promote flat stomachs, you know, (laughs) which I'd probably be the wrong guy for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, so it's, for me, it's always just been like, can I organically grow somewhat of a meaningful community on here? And 
And, you know, when I put a post up, I, there's a whole bunch of friends on there checking it out and we have conversations about it and, it and it just it just feels right. Like it feels like a nice natural thing. It doesn't feel like the vacuum of the internet where fire emojis come flying at you. Right, right. Another thing I'm realizing is that I I have been known to uh, uh, say on this podcast that I'm I'm bothered uh, or just sort of uh, bored by Instagram accounts that are uh, video after video of just like the same shot, <laughs> right? Like you're looking yeah. at the same thing. But what I'm realizing about um, you know in talking about your Instagram and and kind of your approach is that. The you know the the fact that there isn't any variety visually puts the focus on the sounds, and so that is that is definitely a, a deliberate thing, which which purely stemmed from like I if I have to spend forty five minutes to make the video portion of this a thing, then that's forty five less minutes I can spend on getting it right, playing yeah. it, or mixing it. Yeah, um, I just it, like. I want people to be able to see enough that they realize that I am actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to change angles a whole bunch of times, which gives me the opportunity to do massive drastic edits in my tracking. Um, and, you know, I, I have absolutely zero things against people that do that because I understand that putting out what is more of a polished product, I mean, it's exactly the same thing as a band recording something and, you know, editing the shit out of it, tuning mm-hmm. the shit out of the vocals. Like, you know, there's a line to be drawn there maybe, but I don't care about it. Um, and yeah, I'm not going to begrudge people that do that. Um, but for me, it's like a big part of what I'm trying to do and the niche I'm trying to carve is that I want to do things that don't necessarily sound like your regular organic drum sounds, but they're done organically. Yeah. Yeah. And so, if, if yeah, I don't need to dazzle with the video side of it, you know. <laughs> right, right. Um, and it, it makes sense, like if you, you know, I, I guess part of part of um, why I have been known to say that is is the notion that we talk about a lot, which is that this business is built on relationships and personalities, and you can't necessarily tell very much about someone's personality if. It's, you know, if it's the same shot, just video after video and, you know, sure. I, being, being like a, a very thinky, feely, emotional dude, like I want to get a sense f- about who that person is. You know, I want to see pictures of like their dog or their, you know, uh, just mm. other parts of their life other than that same, yeah. that one drumming shot over and over. Um, uh, but if you're trying, to, like, if like you said, if you're trying to build a niche, like this is the business I have, these are the sounds I do, then um, you know the shot of your dog or cooking or what, like it's superfluous. It's kind of waste. It's a wasted post for your uh, yeah strategy and objective. Yeah, and that's not to like. I definitely don't want to make it sound like I've had a clinical, super strategic approach to it because, like I've said, the entire the entire premise for the, for the whole Instagram thing for me was to try and build something organically. Right. But I just, I think the main thing is I never had any interest in, um, putting any of the rest of my life on social media. Like I've, I I signed up for Facebook purely so I could be an admin on one of my band's pages. Mm. Um, I didn't have a MySpace. Um, I've never had anything personal on my Instagram. I think I put up a photo of my wife and I a few times when we were like traveling the States mm-hmm. and it was just always her like 
you know, throwing finger signs at me and looking miserable, which <laughs> just became like a nice fun little gag, you know? Um, but outside of that, like, it's like, if I catch up with like a drummer buddy or like a musician buddy that's like from out of town or something, then, you know, maybe I'll stick that up. I'll put a post up last night, a story up last night with my friend Ben, who was mm -hmm. over here playing a couple of shows. Um, Ben Allingworth, for anyone listening, any drummers listening, one of the absolute finest humans and drummers in the world. Um, yeah, like I, I just was never interested in social media from that standpoint whatsoever. So, like I say, man, if people want to do that, by all means. And and also, it's like, you know, it's been actually a really cool thing for, because um, I sort of do class a lot of the people that I communicate with regularly through Instagram and well, pretty much just Instagram these days. Like I do class them as proper friends. You know, we talk pretty regularly and I, I try and get, you know, on actual phone calls with them. You know, like uh, last week after we after we first initially tried to do the podcast, right, right. <laughs> um, I ended up I ended up at the studio until ten to three the next morning. Wow. On the phone, on the phone to like two or three different friends from like around the world, <laughs> just like, and they're all you know they're all kind of people that I've met through through social media through Instagram. Oh, how cool! Um, yeah, it should yeah, it like should it, be I, noted that like we we tried uh, we tried round one of this <laughs> last week and a technical glitch on my end just made it fucking impossible. So thank you again for uh, for making yourself available <laughs> a second time. And I'm glad that it just it gave you an excuse to stay up till three in the morning and and call some Look, global friends. It'll <laughs> it'll be reflected in the invoice. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> no man, you know it's cool. I don't know. I don't really care about these things that much. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, yeah. I, 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 look, like I said, I would have been up watching TV till two in the morning anyway. So, <laughs> what's the difference? Right. right. Um, yeah. Um, what's What's been your experience on TikTok? Because we've been talking about that lately. I I don't know what to make of it yet. Um, you're obviously yep. using it uh, and and using it well. Like, what's What's your experience there? Help, help, Brody. What do uh, you got, man? I have I haven't even looked at it for like three or four weeks now. Um, <laughs> the interactions that I immediately got on there. I actually, you know what? No, that's, it, that's a lie. There was a whole bunch of really nice shit and, you know, some cool people and whatnot. But I found that most of the people that I was interacting with on there were just people that were on my Instagram anyway. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, well, you're touching on, like, this is... not for me. Sorry, what? You know, like, uh, maybe it's just not for me. Like, it just felt, it felt like a little bit less genuine yeah. than I would have... And and also it was a massive time suck. Yeah, like they have got their algorithm so dialed in that like Ugh. I would go on Instagram because I saw that a friend had sent me a message on there, and then like seven hours later I'm like, oh, so that's how you fix a hole in a coffee table with a packet of fucking ramen, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so like it became such a time suck that I'm like, you know what? I don't need this shit. Yeah, um, I, I think I'll probably start putting stuff back on there, but I just kind of lost interest for a little bit. It's it's weird because you know with with the different social media platforms um it's it's hard uh for me and it sounds like for you to to figure out how to use each platform to its distinct advantage and not just make it a duplicate of your other one exactly um exactly and and also i only really want to use social media platforms in the way that i want to use them so that that will mean that um you know some of them won't be beneficial to me or be enjoyable for me whatsoever so i'm not going to kind of change my entire approach to shit to suit a social media platform because yeah. 
that's just not what I've done at all to this point. Yeah. I, I, I needed to hear that right now. Um, <laughs> like, Don't get I'm, sucked into the TikTok vortex. Dude, bro. I'm starting to skim the surface of it and post a few things. And I'm like, I just, I'm not sure how the fuck this works. And I'm, I'm not sure I care. I don't want to be the old guy that's just like, man, fuck TikTok. But I, I might just be that guy. Yeah, look, uh, you know, like I said, I'll probably go back to it and put some stuff on there. But I think... I would, yeah, like to find a way of differentiating it from what I currently do. And all I was doing on there was going and uploading stuff that I'd uploaded to Instagram yeah. ages ago, you know. Like, That's what I'm doing now. Um, yeah. So let, let me know if you figure something else out. <laughs> Look, as the only sort of – the only successes I've seen on there, and, and by success I mean gaining, you know, decent-sized followings and stuff has been the people that have kind of – followed the trends that are on there mm-hmm. um that's not to say that that isn't actually the right thing for some people to do in there i've got a friend who's a um amazing songwriter and producer over in melbourne um he's originally from perth andy hopkins he goes by the name Housky. been lucky enough to plan a few tracks for him and he's doing really good things and you know like he's a super funny guy he's super dry and sarcastic and he can come up with like a little bit you know very easily you know when we're on the phone it goes from hey man how you doing to like stupid bits for an hour and a half and then like oh shit i've got to go by sort of thing so he's kind of applied that to tiktok and that's very much him it's right. very much his personality in a lot of ways and it works for him on there um so like i feel like that's that's the way to do it um, and the, you know, that does follow, follow some of the trends, you know, he'll jump on some of the stuff that's kind of trending on there and whatnot, but do it in his own kind of really dry, funny way. Um, yeah. So like, uh, that's just not really where I'm at. Are you from Perth? Is that where you grew up? Uh, I, uh, Western Australia. I grew, like I've, I've lived in Perth since I was like sixteen or seventeen. Um, but I was born in the country. I grew up on a farm. My oh wow! Family were farmers. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you know, like when people think of Australia, they think of Melbourne and or Melbourne, <laughs> Melbourne, Melbourne, <right>? Melbourne, <laughs> and, and Sydney. Um, yeah. Where does where does Perth like fit into sort of the hierarchy of of Australian cities? Uh, depends who you ask. Uh, I've been to most of the other kind of capital cities and, and major cities quite a few times, and Perth is definitely my preferred choice, just in terms of lifestyle and the pace of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of the forgotten city by the kind of east coast of the country. You know where. Well, we're a three and a half to four hour flight from most of those cities, you know, so yeah. it's very far away, uh, which has been an am- an amazingly fortunate thing for the last, you know, 12 months. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, Western Australia kind of gets a bit overlooked in the grand scheme of things of the whole country, but in terms of music, um, we don't have 
the kind of hub of like labels and management and bookers and stuff over here that's in in Sydney and Melbourne, but we've consistently produced a lot of the sort of bigger and better bands in the country, which has been really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, some of the biggest bands like Tame Impala are from uh, Fremantle, which is like a southern suburb of Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, Kevin, who is basically Tame Impala, he is, um, <laughs> and you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of the bigger bands in the country and yeah, you know, like have been from Perth. Um, it's a very healthy and a very strong and, and, um, varied and cool music scene here. Very clicky, which is the case with, I think most music scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not hugely involved in the music scene here cause I just don't really do the music industry thing to that right. degree. It, it seems like interested. for a long time you've been, you've been, um, focused on your business and your sounds and, not trying to hustle the tour thing or, or uh, you know, be out every night. Yeah. Yeah, the live thing has been basically a non-event for me for the last, uh, well, quite a few years now. Mm-hmm. Um, every now and then I'll play a show, um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not doing regular cover gigs and, and regular regional gigs or anything like that. It just hasn't really interested me. Every Basically, every time I'm getting ready for a gig, I'm like, but I could be doing the stuff I want to do in my studio instead of this. Right. Um, I could so, be leaving the drums set up here. Exactly. <laughs> oh, you mean I could not be trying to park in the city and <laughs> lug my drums around? Wow. What a great opportunity. Oh, um, the touring thing just doesn't suit me on a personality level. I have way too much anxiety for that shit. Hmm. I can't. I can't handle the logistics of the traveling and the and you know all the organizing of it. Yeah. Um, I will be doing a little bit more of that um, now that I've been doing these shows with um, with the drum and bass producer Shock One because he does you know a lot of festivals and a lot of a, he does a lot of touring mostly doing DJ sets but we are going to be touring the live band a little bit I I kind of assume yeah um, and that's the sort of thing where it's like we'll go away and we'll do a couple of festivals mm-hmm. over the course of a weekend during summer and that sort of thing so that that sort of thing I can handle but the idea of being on the road for a month. It it just doesn't suit me, man. I, I I struggled. I can't handle it mentally. I'm very bad at that shit. Um, <laughs> and you know, and and as much as like that is probably the main thing that takes my the enjoyment out of it for me. Even before that was really an issue, I still preferred the kind of creative side of it and recording side of it more so than the live side of it. Anyway, mm-hmm. so well, not to not to psychoanalyze you too hard, but but what what causes that anxiety about traveling and touring? general anxiety basically <laughs> you know like it's, it's it's not it's not only about that shit um uh yeah i'm not really sure it even if i'm just traveling normally i get kind of yeah you know, i stress about it very easily yeah um yeah. you know even if i'm just going on holiday somewhere um i get very sort of stressed about logistics and things like that i'm just it's just a side of my personality that's you know right pretty yeah. weak um <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, look, I as much as I've always loved the traveling that I've done, it's not the sort of thing where I get the bug. Like I'm not like, well, if I traveled now, I probably would get the bug. Um, but um, yeah, it's not the sort of thing where I'm sitting at home going, "Fuck, I wish I was in Japan right now." You right. know, like yeah, it's yeah. I've just not never really been that person. Like I'm, I'm really happy when I'm at home with my wife or I'm at the studio. You know 
seven hours deep on a snare sound. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody really uh, uh, likes the logistics of traveling, but there are some people who, uh, you know, tolerate it because the, the reward for them is, you know, the experiences out there. But if, uh, exactly. Yeah. If, you know, if just the traveling itself uh, is not worth the, <laughs> the end result. Then. Yeah. Yeah, um, look, I'm, I guess most of the touring I've done as well has been in my own independent original bands, which have never had great radio support or anything like that. So it's most of the time been at a significant financial loss. Right. Just because we had we had like a record that we were like, we feel really good about this. And the people that liked it really liked it and it got reviewed really well and things like that. But we weren't getting the backing required to do financially successful touring um or we couldn't get the finances together to do enough touring to build that at like a kind of grassroots level that was that was never going to happen also we all worked full-time jobs and you know that sort of stuff so it wasn't wasn't really a viable option so um i had never really done the sort of touring where i was like you know that was how I was paying my rent. It was right. how I was not paying my rent. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. so yeah, so I guess that probably played into it, but even so, I still think that it just wasn't really for me, you know? Right. Right. Um, has the last year sort of, um, recalibrated or, um, you know, reprioritized anything for you moving forward? Because I think we're, you know, we're all in this space where we've had this sort of like, weird chapter <laughs> that we're starting to come out of. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of us as musicians and a lot of people in general uh, are are coming out of it with like a different set of priorities about how we want to move forward. So has, has that happened for you? We've been, I feel actually, I kind of feel really bad talking about it to be perfectly honest, but we've been so ridiculously lucky here. Like mm-hmm. we live in a very isolated place. Um, our government handled it very well. Wow, what's that like? Days. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> well, before this, I couldn't have told you. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like there's plenty of other things they haven't done so well, and specifically our our state premier, which is you know the kind of the equivalent of a governor in the states, mm-hmm. um, has been like remarkable. Um, so we've been incredibly lucky. So in terms of like a being able to work, especially being that I wasn't really focused on the live sector, it hasn't been a huge burden for me. So mm-hmm. I, that's kind of why I feel bad about talking about it. Because um, <laughs> just I have so many friends around the world that are just like, well, fuck, I haven't done the thing that I do that quite often my, your entire identity is based around. Right. You know? like, yeah, yeah. Like that, I think, well, I, I really feel like that's one of the hardest things for people is that, you know, it's not like people haven't had other hobbies or other jobs, but this was them. Right. It wasn't their job. It was fucking them. So like that, I mean, someone just saying, Hey, you know who you are? Yeah. You're not going to be that for the next year and a half, two years. Like, fuck. That's <laughs> right. I can't even imagine that, man. It's horrible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been myself and, you know, most of our country and especially Western Australia have been incredibly lucky. Um, and it's also being that most of, where I was kind of moving my career towards was working remotely. It's kind of pivoted the industry towards that anyway. Right. Um, right. I mean, so it was heading, it, it was me. heading that way anyway. And it, it COVID yeah, just, just kind of accelerated everything. 
So exactly. Yeah. It worked work to your favor, it sounds like. I mean, between the fact of, of where you are geographically and, and just like the nature of your business and what you've been working at for almost a decade now, um, it, it seemed like not a whole lot uh, really changed <laughs> for you. No, not massively. And that, and that's, you know, that's why I feel so, so grateful mm -hmm. um, that that's, that's the, the hand that we were dealt over this side of the world. So, um, my thoughts are very much with everyone in the States and the UK and throughout Europe and South America and fuck everywhere. Um, <laughs> like we see, I don't know how much you guys see, you know, of Australia in the news, I would assume not very much at all, but we see a lot of, especially the U S and the UK and, you know, it's t fucking tough to watch. Yeah. And I assume very tough to be in. Um, yeah. 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 So, well, but, I mean, but I do it, hope when it comes to COVID in Australia, it was it's kind of like no news is good news. You know, we we yeah. hear we hear about where shit is really bad, and and we hear about Australia when the entire fucking country is on fire. Um, you yeah. know, but yeah. when it when it comes to COVID, uh, it's it's been pretty pretty quiet over there. Fortunately for you, look, I do hope that. Um, it kind of does get some traction, in, you know, somewhere in the news in other countries as like, you know, things with with the right governance and, and the right sort of strategies in place, like, and also with a population that are willing to help the whole thing move in the right direction. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is not 100% the case here, but has, you know, like I, I feel like the people of Australia have kind of done the right thing for the most part and it's been... It's like Melbourne and Sydney, Melbourne especially, were in lockdown for quite a while. Like it was actually really, really dire for them for a little while. Mm -hmm. Not that, not that there was like crazy numbers and crazy cases and deaths and things like that, but that the government saw the potential for it to kind of go apeshit there and went, no, we're locking this shit down hard. And right. so I had a lot of friends over in Melbourne that were just trapped for a very long time, mm -hmm. but it, it did work. Yeah. Um, it was it was just really shitty for him. And when you um, talk about people doing the right thing, like it's it's not about, um, you know, this this is going to be the uh, uh, political science uh, portion of the interview. But it, like, it, it's not about people submitting to the government. In my opinion, it's about no. people trusting the government and trusting each other. Um, exactly. And I think places where uh, COVID has gone apeshit, uh, like the U.S. and Europe. Um, and some parts of Asia are places where there isn't a lot of trust between the people and the government. Yeah. I think I would say one of the main factors here is that it was, it wasn't politicized. Mm -hmm. Like the issue never got politicized. So people had no incentive to take a side on the issue. Um, <clears throat> which like the government that we have, you know, our federal government are not the people that I will give my vote to mm -hmm. by any stretch. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I disagree with them on most fronts, um, but they've done an okay job with this shit. So, you right. know, like I, I'm not going to be like, well, I disagree with you on your immigration policy and your treatment of, you know, the indigenous people and, and things like that, all the horrible things that, that especially that side of our politics have done. Mm -hmm. Um, but I guess on this issue, it's like, I'm not going to fucking fight them on it for no good reason. Right. Just because I disagree with, with them on everything else. And I think that's, uh, look, Australia is not the kind of, as much as it is kind of bipartisan, but it's not the, the duality that, um, a lot of other countries are mm -hmm. in terms of your, your red or blue. It's, right. Um, we're, we're very lucky in that regard. I think maybe the people here are just, 
kind of a little more apathetic about the whole thing <laughs> to, you know, to maybe to their benefit, but also, you know, to, to our um, detriment in, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you were sort of, uh, minimally affected. Um, and it, you know, I, I just, I look forward to, uh, seeing what else you do on, in that studio. I, I, I'll, the sounds you're getting out of there are mind blowing. I'm a year into this in my studio, like this, you know, getting a home tracking thing going was my COVID project. Yeah. And, and so I'm, right. I'm at the beginning of the journey, um, uh, you know, sonically, uh, and yeah. seeing seeing the stuff that that you're putting out there is is just really inspiring and and mind blowing. Um, so keep it up. Give us more. Thank thank you so much. <laughs> I think I'll be posting a video in uh, uh, about ten minutes. Well, whenever we're done with this, actually. <laughs> cool. Um, so yeah. Um, so you got ten minutes. No, <laughs> I, do, I do see what appears to be a bloom line setup of something behind your head there. Oh yeah, it's um it's what two uh, it's two uh, AT forty forties and and they're right they're basically in in XY. Um, but oh, it is XY, right? Okay. Yeah, but just pointing yeah. at each other. Um, right. Uh, I had them. I had them sort of like crossed with each other yeah and i i don't know what made me realize it but i was like i can they're gonna be a lot cleaner to move around if i just do that yeah this is just part of the studio 101 shit that is dawning on me little by little you know (laughs) man the only way i've ever known how to learn that shit is the hard way and trial and error yeah man i feel you know what i just feel like it's it is the only way i learn and so much of me believes that it's kind of the right way to learn that shit, you know, because through that trial and error, you find the wrong way that will eventually be the right way in the right, right situation as well. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm also finding out like, you know, not unlike uh, the, the process of discovery in your playing, um, you know, you can, you can fill up your IG feed with all kinds of shit that, that you can learn from, um, but there's there's just no replacement for spending the hours just fucking around in your space with your gear and figuring yep. out what's going to work for you um Lear- learning your gear yep. especially like such like i don't care all that much about preamps i care a bit about mics mm-hmm. um but you know like in terms of what i'm plugging those mics into makes not a whole lot of difference to me um and you're in, seeing you're seeing the entire regards. picture of of like your gear and your playing and um I interviewed um Dan Bailey a couple months ago and and he yep. said uh like I don't I don't get hired because I'm a great engineer I get hired because I'm great at engineering my own playing. Yeah, very much so. And, uh, that yeah, that's exactly what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. That that seems very much what what you're doing over there as well. I think that's the benefit of the whole thing is that like I have obviously engineered for a ton of other drummers Mm -hmm. um, and the first song is you figuring out how the fuck to engineer that drummer. Right. Um, Whereas like, yeah, I kind of already know that, you know, if I put a mic there, I'm probably not going to hit it with the stick and it's also kind of like going to work for the (laughs) dynamics that I play a groove with, you know? Um, In saying that, I've hit plenty of mics with plenty of sticks. Well, it was, it was great. It was great talking with you, man. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for talking. Thank you, dude. Great to, great to uh, be on the podcast. There you go. Brody Simpson was a good time talking with him. Check him out all over the web. He's easy to find. 
Next week, Matthew Krauss will be talking with stalwart veteran Jack Bruno, whose resume includes some true icons like Tina Turner and Joe Cocker, and whose current bosses include Delbert McClinton and Richard Marks. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, just for a little longer, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.